Are you ready? Okay, good, good. Sorry to interrupt you. (laughs) You were having a good time there. All right. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles, church family. Clint has prayed us up. We're ready to step into the Word, and he couldn't have said it any better. Boy, just let Tim be a mouthpiece for what you want to say, Lord. That is definitely my heart. John chapter 4. If you'll take your Bible and join me in John's Gospel, the fourth chapter. If you need a Bible today, Charlie's in the back. Be happy to share a copy of the Word. Pull that little note page out of your bulletin, if you would. And if you haven't done this already, can you please silence your phone? That would be a great help to us also. While you're kind of getting settled in, I'd like to begin with a story. It's a true story that unfolds in the middle of the 1800s, and the setting for this story is the Hawaiian Islands. Now, most of us, when we hear Hawaiian Islands, we, we think beaches and palm branches and gentle breezes of a tropical paradise. But in the middle 1800s, it wasn't quite like that. As a steady influx of Europeans came to these islands, they brought with them all kinds of sicknesses and diseases that the native islanders had never been exposed to and therefore had no immunity against. And one of the diseases in particular that the Europeans brought was leprosy. An incurable, highly contagious, horrific disease that affects the nervous system disfiguring hands and feet, face, ears, making the afflicted vulnerable to other diseases and infections that ultimately will result in death. The leprosy epidemic in Hawaii became so severe during the middle of the 1800s that all lepers were quarantined to a single section of the island of Molokai. There they would live out their lives in isolation with other lepers in a colony kept away from the rest of society until death took them. In about 1864, there was a man who came to the islands as a missionary, a priest named Damien. His hope was to serve the Lord here in this place. He took up various ministry duties for a number of years until the bishop approached him and asked him to go to Molokai and minister to the sick there, to the lepers. It would be a short-term assignment lasting just a couple of months. He arrives on the island, and he is shocked by the conditions, by the degree of human suffering that was there. He was greeted quite literally by the living dead. Everywhere he looked, there was grotesque disfigurement, oozing sores, great pain, and other rampant diseases that were preying on these weak and dying lepers. And the worst part of it was the utter hopelessness that Damien saw in the eyes of the lepers. Life without hope. In his diary, he tells of having great difficulty in not wrenching over because of the sights and the smells that greeted him the first time he was there. He was eventually taken to what was called the dying shed. It was the place that those who were near death were taken. He stepped into this shed, and it quite literally was just that, a shed. 
And his eyes met those of a little boy desperately clinging to life. His face was swollen. His body lay trembling on a filthy, soiled, infected bed. Damien could see maggots crawling in his open sores. And though he was warned not to touch anyone, this priest knelt down beside this little boy and began to stroke a spot on his neck that was untainted by the leprosy. He talked to him about Jesus and about heaven and that God welcomed all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And then he prayed over the little boy and and in his diary he tells that as he prayed, a spasm went through the boy's body and he died. After the few months that he was supposed to be there had passed, Damien was convinced that this could not be a short-term mission. He would dedicate his life to the care of these suffering lepers. He wrote these words to his superiors. I wish to sacrifice myself for the poor lepers, for the harvest there seems ripe. The harvest there seems ripe. So why do I tell us this story here at the outset? Well, church family, we're going to step back into the story of Jesus and his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and with the people of Sychar, the little village where she lived. Rob introduced you, if you were here last week, he introduced you to this scene. We're returning to John chapter 4 today, not because Rob didn't do a good job and Pastor Tim needs to come back and fix things. It's not that at all. He did a great job with chapter 4. We return here because there was just too much for Rob to cover in one morning. He even told us last week that uh, he would, we would be coming back to this place. And so here we are for a second round. And it's my privilege to help us today. Today we're going to hear Jesus say, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that we are all living in the dying shed today. We live in the dying shed. There are people all around us here in Idlewild, on this mountain, wherever you might live if you're visiting with us today, and they are living without the assurance, without the certainty of life forever with God through faith in Jesus. They're staring into a godless eternity doomed to an unending existence without any hope. We live in the dying shed right now. And just like Damien stepped into that shed of dying lepers and said, there's a harvest here, I know it. So we stand in that shed in our time, surrounded by the spiritually dying, and we say, there is a harvest here. There is a harvest here if we will but have eyes to see it. Brothers and sisters, we have the cure for the incurable disease of sin, don't we? And his name is Jesus. 
Jesus. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Let's return then to John chapter 4 and get reacquainted with that Samaritan woman that Jesus met by Jacob's well near the town of Sychar. Jesus has sent his disciples into the village to get some food, so he is sitting by himself at this well, and up walks this woman with her water jar. She's a five-time loser in marriage. She belonged to a racial underclass. She felt like a social pariah, like an outcast. None of the other women in her village would associate with her, which is why She's coming to the well right at noon. He came to the well normally in the morning and then late in the afternoon. The women didn't want to come with her, and so she comes by herself at midday. She's a moral failure. She was desperately looking for love, even in this moment, living with a man perhaps in a loveless relationship, a man not her husband. And so she meets Jesus here at this well, and he helps her to realize that she has a thirsty soul. And he offers her the gift of living water, if you remember from last week. He offers her the gift of eternal life. And then he reveals himself to her as the long-anticipated, promised of God, Messiah, the Deliverer. Verse 25 of chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm him. I'm him. Well, at that exact moment, guess who shows up? The disciples. They return from going to get food. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back, and they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I have ever that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds truth, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, 
It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed, and here's the punchline, the Savior of the world. We know that this is the Savior of the world. The, re- the disciples return from their food shopping foray into Sychar, and there unfolds this awkward moment when they return. We read that the disciples marveled at what they saw. Jewish men did not sit down and have private conversation with women. And certainly, a Jewish man did not sit down with a Samaritan woman, a half-blooded Jew who was viewed to be ethnically impure. And yet, though they're kind of put off by this scene that confronts them, we're told that they hold their questions, which, quite honestly, was very rare for these guys. They don't ask, hey, what's this? What are you doing, Jesus? Don't, don't you know who you're talking to? They don't say anything. But they're definitely caught off guard. They keep quiet. And what unfolds now is one of the truly beautiful lessons from Scripture for how you and I, fellow Christian, can and should be reaching a spiritually dying humanity with the good news of the gospel. This is an amazing scene. The gospel. Reaching people with the gospel. We hear the word gospel. What is that? What what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is simply the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners, and that truth is appropriated into my life by grace through faith. The truth of who Jesus is, God, God in human flesh. And what has he done? He's died on a cross to pay a sin debt that I could never pay, and he rose from the dead, proving himself victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And I get eternal life. And I appropriate that truth into my life. It's purely by the grace of God that I know it, And I appropriate it into my life through faith. That's the gospel. And so this woman and the words of Jesus that follow become a powerful learning moment for us now on how to reach a lost people who are in the dying shed with the gospel. How do we do that? Well, we're going to learn. Let's just notice a few things that the Samaritan woman herself can teach us. In verse 28, we read, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Apparently, this lady is so excited about what she has heard and what she's experienced while with Jesus that she rushes off to her village, leaving her water jar behind. And it's a subtle little detail, but I would not want you to miss it because the Holy Spirit includes it here, I think, for a reason. There is a new priority in her life. And it's so exciting that everything else becomes kind of an afterthought for her. She wanted to get back to Sychar and and, and tell somebody, tell anybody what she's discovered. And this this heavy water jar is just going to slow her down. And so she says, oh, forget that water jar. What I've got to share is too good to keep to myself. I got to go. And she leaves the pot behind. She has a new priority. She has a new drive in her life. 
So what's the lesson for us here? It's just this. If we're ever going to bring the good news of Jesus to lost people who are living in the dying shed of life, we are going to have to make that our priority. Would you agree? That's got to be our priority. And we need to do that with some energy, with some excitement, with some passion as we go. I remember us talking about this very issue on Christmas Eve, how the Christmas story, because we've heard it so many times, it can kind of take on a a pledge of allegiance feel to it. Do you remember this from Christmas Eve, those of you who were there? We talked about, say yes, I, I remember everything you said from Christmas Eve, Pastor Tim. Don't, but but here's, the, here's the idea. The Christmas story, it, it's so familiar to us, it takes on this, this Pledge of Allegiance quality. You know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the Republic of Virginia. Oh, one nation under God, indivisible, right? And the Christmas story can, can because it's so familiar, can, can kind of get that feel too. An angel announced the birth of Jesus, God in the flesh, born of a virgin. Shepherds come, angels sing. <sighs> I'll ask you, can that happen to the gospel? Can that happen to the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done for sinners? I think it can happen. I think it can happen. Oh, Jesus, Son of God, died on the cross, paid sin's debt, was buried, rose the third day, offered salvation to sinners. It can happen, can it? It can happen. Listen, fellow Christian, if we are not excited about the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done for us personally, we need to stop and ask the question, why am I not excited about that? Why does that not fire my engines? Why am I not excited about the most glorious truth in the universe? Hell-bound sinners can have heaven with God forever. That ought to excite me. That's good news, isn't it? That's not just good news. That's great news. That's the best news in the universe. People in the dying shed can have life. I have life. Why am I not excited about that? This woman was excited. She was excited. Verse 29. She races back to town. And she blurts out, and I assume she's run straight to the marketplace because that's where this will have maximum impact. And she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? She was so excited. Nothing was more important than getting out this word. I think I just met the promised Messiah. You got to come and see this man. I think it's him. She's fired up. The good news is her priority. The gospel is her priority. But for her to say this was not without significant risk. And therein lies a second lesson that she teaches us. When she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did, do you suppose that that raised a few eyebrows? A few sarcastic glances from person to person as she says that? Because, you see, 
everybody in this town, it's a small town. Everybody in town knows this woman's story. They know her past. Married five times, living with somebody right now who's not her husband. They know. They know. And so she takes a huge risk here of being rejected and put down and laughed at because of who she is and how she has lived. And here she comes in with this message. This woman had a testimony, but she also had a past. But that doesn't stop her, and she risks because what she has to share is worth risking for. It's worth the risk of being laughed at or mocked or put down. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And don't miss this. She asks a question. She doesn't make a declaration. She doesn't say, hey, I've found the Messiah. She says, come, check us out for yourself. Come, come with me and check this out. And this actually is quite a freeing thing for you and me who are walking among the living dead in our community. We can't make anyone believe in Jesus. Would you agree with that? We're not going to save a single person. That is impossible. We don't save anybody. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only He can impart saving life. All we can do is bear witness to the impact that Jesus has had on us, the difference that He has made in us. Right? That's what we bring to the table. And that's what she's doing. This guy had an impact on my life. Come check him out. I invite you to join me. She's such a great example for us. And she really does let us off the hook. We don't have to save anybody. You hear that? We don't save anybody. We just have to bear witness of the one who does save. We tell people about who Jesus is. We tell them about what he's done. That's the gospel. And then we let the hearer make up their own mind as the Holy Spirit does his work in them. That's freeing. I love that. And then a third lesson this amazing lady brings to us is the reminder that God's main method of reaching dying people is us. Us. We're God's strategy for saving the world. Individuals like you and me telling other people, usually just one at a time, that there is a Savior and His name is Jesus. We're it. We're we're God's redemptive methodology. Verse 30. They went out of the town and were coming to Him. Why were they coming? Because she had simply shared the story of her meeting with Jesus. And that's all it took. Well, we got to go. We got to go see what this is about. Picture a stone in a pond, church family. The stone is dropped into the water. And, and what happens? Well, all of these ripples start to emanate out from that point of impact, right? Well, this, this woman, I would submit to you, is... God's first stone tossed into the pond called Sychar. 
a single individual that God sovereignly wanted to involve in his salvation methodology. And so Jesus' news is passing from one person to another person to another person, kind of like a holy epidemic, kind of rifling through the town of Sychar. Her testimony was all that God asked of her, all that he required of her, just be my mouthpiece. I'll do the rest. You just be my mouthpiece. That's all that God asks of us too. It's a great lesson, great reminder. In fact, check this out, church family. These are the Holy Spirit's words through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning of verse 17. And I'm guessing many of you know verse 17. It reads like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what the gospel does, right? It makes us new. It makes us brand new. No longer dead in sin, but alive in Jesus. We ought to be able to get excited about that, right? We're new creations in Christ. Verse 18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Don't you love that? We're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God's main method of reaching dying people is us. That's it. That's it. So we get excited about our life in Jesus, never allowing it to become Pledge of Allegiance, boring and familiar. We embrace the fact that stepping into the dying shed comes with some risk of rejection, right? We're okay with that. And we humbly make ourselves available to be ambassadors for Jesus. God appealing to others, mostly one at a time, through our testimony. The Samaritan woman teaches us those things. And then what follows is one of the most beautiful sermons that Jesus ever gives on the subject of sharing the good news with other people. It's short, but boy, is it powerful, as only he could deliver it. And this is such a timely passage for us, brothers and sisters. You know why it's so timely? It's because we're living in the greatest harvest time in the history of this world. The greatest harvest time in all of human history is happening right now. We're living in it. Did you know that every single day around the world, it's estimated that somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Every single day around the world, that's happening. Did you know that in China, there are more people who belong to Jesus Christ and call him Savior than belong to the Communist Party? Did you know that? That's true. Did you know that on the continent of Africa, 34,000 people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ today? 
and again tomorrow and the next day. And usually it will be one person telling another person about Jesus. 34,000. We're living in the greatest harvest time in all of human history. And we get to be part of that. God wants to include us in that. And so if you flip that note, note, note page over, what are the words at the very top? It's harvest time. We need to say that out loud together. All of us at once with some energy. It's harvest time. Do you believe it? Oh, man. Back to our text, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so now, church family, what I just put the question to you. What is on the disciples' mind? Huh? Food, their bellies. Food, right? They're just, they're they're thinking food. They're all about falafels and pita bread in this moment. That's where they're at. Jesus, for his part, wants to teach them about something infinitely more important than food. He's thinking about perishing souls. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What's the Father's will? That sinners would be saved. And he says, I'm all about accomplishing that work. That's my food. That's what energizes me. That's what I'm going to eat on today. God's heart, his work is to save people in the dying shed. God sent Jesus into the world of dying sinners to save them. That was the food that Jesus was thinking about. That's the work. On your note page, harvest-minded Jesus followers make God's work their work too. It is certainly no accident, church family, that the last recorded words of Jesus before he goes into heaven are all about this thought, that God's work is our work. Matthew chapter 28. What's the first word? Go. Go. 2819. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Before lost sinners can become disciples, they first have to be what? Believers in Jesus, right? And before they can become believers in Jesus, they must be introduced to the, the gospel, to the good news. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, Paul had told us earlier. That's where it begins. We're part of this work. We need to see ourselves as part of the work. And then the next thing that Jesus does is call on his disciples to begin to see people in a different way than they were seeing them. He wants his disciples to see their world through harvest eyes. On your note page, harvest-minded Jesus followers see people with spiritual eyes, harvest eyes. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with what? 
Spiritual harvest. Spiritual harvest. Don't think grain in a field. Think souls in the world. Brothers and sisters, the Christian who is harvest-minded literally sees their world differently than everybody else sees their world. And that's no joke. Catch the scene. These villagers from Sychar, they've left whatever they were doing on the basis of this woman's testimony, and now they're quickly going out to Jacob's well. And so as they're coming out from the town towards the well, Jesus perhaps lifts up his his arm and he points in their direction. He, He says to his disciples, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. What are they supposed to see? Souls, right? Souls coming towards them. We're not waiting for harvest, guys. The harvest is here. It's now. It's these people. Disciples have a vision problem. Open your eyes, he says. They didn't see the Samaritans as perishing souls in the dying shed. They didn't see that. Their prejudice and their pride and their own agenda blinded them to what Jesus so clearly saw. They saw Jesus' desire to go into the region of Samaria as kind of a needless detour. It was an inconvenience. It was an intrusion into their plans. They wanted to go up into Galilee where the, where the good folk live. We're not going into Samaria, are we? They saw Samaria as an offense to their pure-blooded Jewishness we Jews don't go there. <laughs> right? We don't go there. They saw Jesus talking to a woman of Samaria as being way beneath who he was. You're our teacher. You're, a, you're Jewish. You're a man. You, you shouldn't be doing that. She's a, she's a woman and she's, <laughs> she's a Samaritan woman. How can you do that? They've got a vision problem. Jesus says, guys, you need to see all of this very differently than you're seeing it. You need harvest eyes, eyes that see spiritual need, that see desperation, that see loneliness, that, and, that, that see eternity without God and without hope. You need to see that. Eyes that don't look at a moment like this as an interruption in your schedule, but as an opportunity to introduce other people to me. You should be running to them and dragging them to me because you see who they really are. This woman's not an object of derision. She has great need, and I can meet the need. There's a harvest here. If you'll open your eyes. As I have studied this passage, I'll just confess to you. It has prompted me to ask this question of myself. How many times, Tim, have you missed gospel opportunities because you didn't have harvest eyes? You weren't harvest minded. I mean, stop and think about this for just a moment. Jesus blows through 
the gender barrier, the racial barrier, the cultural barrier, and the religious barrier to reach just one woman. And then, through her, he reaches a whole town. Now, any one of these, gender, race, culture, religion, any one of them was a deal breaker for the disciples who were blinded to the harvest. How many times have we missed gospel opportunities because we didn't have harvest eyes, we weren't harvest-minded, so caught up in our own stuff that we never really see the people in the dying shed? How many times? Oh, Father, forgive me. Forgive me. The question that you would ask is, how might our spiritual vision be improved? Thank you for asking that question. How might we acquire more clarity of sight when it comes to the lost in the shed? How could we, how could we have new eyes? Well, I think Jesus answers the question in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest, same, same analogy here, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what church? Pray, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Have you ever thought about the fact that the way to get new eyes is to ask God for them? Give me harvest eyes. Have you ever prayed that? I've never prayed that until now. And, you know, we would add to this prayer, Lord, make me one of these laborers. Grant me eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart filled with compassion for those who are helpless and hopeless and dying in the shed. I want those eyes. Give me those eyes. Well, as Jesus preaches this very short but powerful sermon, he carries this whole harvest imagery forward. Look, he says, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They're white for harvest. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. On your note page, Harvest-minded Jesus followers know that salvation is a process. There is sowing before reaping. That's a great thing to keep in mind. Brothers and sisters, here's another freeing truth for us when, when it comes to bringing the gospel into the lives of those who don't know Jesus yet. Even we non-farming folk, which I assume is what most of us in this room are, we're not, we're not farmers The closest we get to farming is walking through the produce aisle at the grocery store, at the store, smelling a cantaloupe or thumping on a watermelon. I'm a farmer, right? That's about as close as it gets for us. But even we who are not farmers, we know that the farmer doesn't go straight to harvest. What does the the farmer do first? He sows. He sows the seed. 
and 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 there has to be that tilling the ground and 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 weeding and then and then planting the seed and then watering it and weeding a little more and watering a little more and weeding a little more and, and usually with a pretty good amount of time passing right there is a process before there is a harvest there has to be a sowing of the seed a harvest minded follower of Jesus doesn't need Listen carefully to this. You do not need to dump the whole gospel truck in one moment on your unbelieving friend. You don't have to do that. You don't have to deliver the four spiritual laws, ask for a commitment, confirm that they've done that by them voicing the sinner's prayer in your presence, and then you say, Hallelujah, Jesus, one more added to the kingdom, amen. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. What do you have to do? Sow a little seed. Just drop a little seed. Here's what Jesus did in my life. Here's here's the prayer he answered for me. I was in this situation and here's how God worked with me in that moment. Here's what he did for me. Just dropping little seeds. That's all we're asked to do. Why? Because salvation is a process. And, and, and if we're harvest-minded, all we're really doing is becoming good seed droppers. Drop a seed here, drop a seed there, always thinking redemptively, always seeing people spiritually, always mindful that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. The Apostle Paul, he had this, this idea clearly in his mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what he writes. I planted. Boop, boop, boop. I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth, right? God did the growing. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. There's nothing to brag about in that but only God who gives the growth. He who plants, he who waters are one. They're on the same team and each will receive his wages according to his labor for we are God's fellow workers. And isn't that what Jesus just said in verse 37? One sows and other reaps. That's it. Both have the same end game in mind, which is what? Harvest. When you're the sower, what do you do? Well, you plant the seed. Well, then what? Well, then you wait, right? That's what you do. You sow and then you wait. And you check on the seed's progress and you cultivate the ground a little bit and you weed a little bit and then somebody else comes along and waters what you've sown. And maybe it's weeks, it's months, maybe even years that this process goes on. And then one day, a little shoot pokes out of the ground. Someone's come to faith in Jesus. And that, that grows up unto eternal life. People are in the dying shed. They're in the dying shed. And they cross over from death to life. And somebody was there to be part of that harvesting moment. Does it need to be you? Does it need to be you? No, it doesn't need to be you. What do you need to do? Sow 
the seed. Maybe you'll get to harvest. Maybe you won't. But here's the thing. You don't have to be jealous. You don't have to be discontent. And you certainly don't have to beat yourself up saying, Oh man, all I ever do is sow. I never get to reap. And you don't need to say that because you're on the same team with the reaper, right? There is no reaper without the sower. Verse 36 so that sower and reaper rejoice together. How cool is that? Salvation is a process. We need to keep that in mind. And that brings us to one final thought as the Apostle Paul or Apostle John pens the postscript to this amazing scene. And it's this. Harvest-minded Jesus followers believe in the principle of multiplication. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Does it stop there? It does not. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him from the town, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We got it. We got it. Started with one, it multiplied to a whole town. Just by virtue of Jesus talking to one woman, introducing her to himself, and then she takes Jesus to her circle, an entire village is made spiritually alive. How cool is that? That's, that's multiplication. That's how it works. We don't have to try to evangelize the world. God's not asking you to do that or me. We just need to be harvest-minded towards how many? One. Just one. Just one. And then the multiplication kicks in. I recall reading how if there was just one Billy Graham type of evangelist who was super effective at leading people to faith in Jesus and this evangelist could lead a thousand people a day to faith in Christ it would take that one evangelist all by himself 19,000 years to introduce the world to Jesus however if that same evangelist introduces just one person to Jesus and then that person shares their faith in Jesus with another. Now there's two. Then the two become four. The four become eight. The eight becomes 16. The 16 becomes 32. The 32 becomes 64. And on and on it goes. And in 37 years, the entire planet comes into, into contact with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, not everybody believes. We get that. But isn't that extraordinary? The principle of multiplication. We can all be a seed sower, can't we? Just one other person. Sow the seed. The rest is up to God. People in the dying shed being given hope and life and eternity with God forever simply because one person shared Jesus with them. It's harvest time what jesus says look i tell you lift up your eyes and see the fields are ripe they're ready let me wrap with this i didn't finish the story of damien on the island of molokai after seeing the suffering of the lepers and witnessing the hopelessness in the dying shed 
He said, I'm going to stay here. I wish to sacrifice myself for these lepers, for the harvest there is great. In his diary, he writes, I will make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. His words, church family, would, prof- would prove prophetic. Sixteen years after stepping into that scene of suffering, he himself died of complications resulting from leprosy. He was 49 years old. But he didn't die before many, many in that leper colony came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He introduced them to the Savior of the world. And that's what we do too. That's what we do. Damien was harvest-minded. May we be of the same mind. And here's the reason why, church. Because the dying shed. The dying shed is on the other side of these walls. Let's pray.